tell me, what, what do these three images all have in common? Obviously, a picture of the solar system. For $300, the planet closest to the sun. Alex, what is the planet Mercury? Or this one, a picture that always hurts my heart. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? It's so easy being made fun of for those of like me who can no longer help junior hires with any of their math. Or this one, the picture of you or me in a spelling bee. I can remember like it's yesterday the knot in my stomach at my third grade spelling bee when the kid in front of me misspelled the word outrageous. It's a word I have never misspelled again in the next 59 years of my life. These are all images of using our minds, good and bad. They're all tied to a value at Menlo Church, a cornerstone that we feel called to be serious about where we rigorously explore the life of the mind as followers of Jesus in this setting here, here in the Bay, where there are world-class universities and world-changing intellectual entrepreneurs, where everybody is sure that they're in the top 10% of their class. And the life of the mind has very little to do with being the smartest kid in the class. But there's that knot in the stomach that says you ought to be, isn't there? Having a value for the life of the mind is a response to to one of the central commands of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New, where Moses and Jesus both answer, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind, which Jesus only amplifies by saying, and the second is like it, to, to love your neighbor as yourself. Guys, mind if I give you a long quote to start with? Half of it's just so that I can show you who the speaker is. Look at this guy. Wouldn't you love to hear a sermon from him? He is the Reverend Dr. William Evertsburg. What a great name. And this is what he says. Today, we talk about the life of the mind. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And he went on. I'm preaching to the choir this morning. If you grew up a Congregationalist among the Presbyterians or the Dutch Reformed, that surly Frenchman John Calvin got a lot of it wrong, but one thing he got right was to shepherd a literate flock so they could read their Bibles for themselves. Calvin's Geneva boasted one of the first public high schools in all of Europe. And then in the 19th century, American Presbyterians doubled down on that. They were the ones who demanded free public education for all Americans until the age of 16. You know, I love that those stern-looking ancestors, the Puritans and the Congregationalists, built Harvard University on the banks of the Charles River in 1636, just 16 years after they landed at Plymouth Rock. Then Eversburg went on and said, so I am preaching to the choir if you were a Calvinist, or you are. I'm preaching to the choir if you're a Presbyterian. I'm preaching to the choir if you're an American. But am I preaching to the choir if you're a Christian? Is the American love of knowledge the same thing as the life of the mind? Well, 
believers of all stripes throughout the ages have attributed their intellect to the gift of God. St. Augustine proclaimed that all truth is God's truth. Sir Isaac Newton said that he imagined God creating the universe as a huge play box and delighted in his children learning to explore more and do better with their minds. All the way through to today, where genetic mapping reminds Francis Collins of the beauty of God's creations. He talks about them as the art of heaven and and puts up a picture of a stained glass window from the Middle Ages and a picture of the cell of a human being on either side, both from the hand of their creator, explored by these men and women of faith for the integration of their faith and knowledge that strengthen both. But most of us aren't aren't Isaac Newtons. We're ordinary followers of Jesus who go about our work or our school or our retirement or our community service with all the same struggles and doubts as our next door skeptical neighbor friends. What's the message of the life of the mind for us? Because we live in a culture here and now where the, Greek, where the geeks and the nerds, they're the new superheroes, where there's a huge value on being smart, especially in the Bay. There's often tension when we try to integrate the rational, which can be measured and verified and repeated, and those other private beliefs, those values, which have to be taken by faith. So we live in a world where one of the subtle or not so subtle contests is Who's got the smartest kid in the class? With all those bumper stickers about my kid is an honor student at fill in the blank of the school. So followers of Jesus are saying when it comes to the life of the mind that the church needs to join in. That some of the very best thinkers ought to be unabashed followers of the maker of heaven and earth. The church should be a place for grad students to come here as their minds are being shaped for life. Menlo Church needs to become a home for the arts and creativity in all shapes, a friend to the sciences that explores the why and not just the what's new of science. Menlo has a chance to be a convener of the high conversation, civil engagements with a whole different tone that would be humble and unthreatened and endlessly curious and loving. And this can be a gathering space where those who want to stretch their minds find models and mentors, whether they are champions of government or the academy, whether they are entrepreneurial leaders of industry or just trying to grow up. So our first response to the life of the mind value is to engage to learn to love the Lord our God with all our minds wherever we're called. I had uh, just become a Christian and transferred to this little school in Illinois to play football. One of the faculty celebrities there was a, a man named Dr. Arthur Holmes. He had a huge bald egg head. The story was that he repeatedly turned down the chair of philosophy at Harvard because he wanted young people to learn a Christian worldview. That's where I learned that term. That's where the first time I heard Dr. Holmes quote Abram Kuyper, 
There is not one square inch in the whole of creation over which my King Jesus has not cried out, this is mine. And he pulled out a book by Harry Blomiris called The Christian Mind and said there is literally a battle for our minds, for how we think. That over the centuries there has been the understanding that our minds are to be shaped by what those minds focus on. Blomiris says, there is unfortunately no longer a Christian mind. Of course, there's still a Christian ethic, a Christian practice, a Christian spirituality, but as thinking beings, the modern Christian has become secular. He accepts religion, its morality, its worship, its spiritual culture, but the Christian rejects the faith-filled view of life, that view which relates all of the problems, social, political, cultural, scientific, all related to the foundations of the Christian faith, that view which sees all things here below in terms of the supremacy of God everywhere. That is the second implication of the life of the mind, that we have to recover it, restore it. We live in a culture where our very minds are being fought for. It's not new. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, so we destroy arguments and every obstacle of pride raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought needs to be captive to obey Christ. The dean of the chapel at Duke, Will Willimon, used to say that Christian education, Christian thought, is the detoxification of culture. You see what he means, right? The world teaches us so many things, some beautiful, some wrong, a few toxic, even when it's subtle. We believe it takes the mind of Christ to help you unlearn some of what the world tries to teach us. It gets ingrained like the world we see with our eyes and touch, with our hands, is all the world that really matters. This other stuff is in the fuzz. The point of human life is to be successful, to make money, to have fun. Culture says you are the captain of your own soul, and you have heard from the cradle that you owe nothing to anyone in the world but not to hurt others and find yourself. So, how do Christ followers attend to the life of the mind? One Christian writer recognized that there are three different kinds of thoughts, and where he spent time focusing shaped his mind. The first thoughts overtly take you away from God. Paul's letter to the Romans again, that the result of these kinds of thoughts is the futility of our minds and darkened understanding. We become alienated from the very life of God. What kind of thing would do that and lead to that darkness? Paul says it's sensuality and our obsession with sex. It's greed and our thinking about having more all the time. It's, it's the deceitful desires of our heart that lead us down wrong paths. That the life of the mind is shaped or misshaped by falsehood and stealing the thoughts of others by getting bitter or envious that when we speak foully or we slander others, when we give way to our anger, 
we diminish the life of the mind. Did I leave anybody out? I see all those in my life from time to time. That's not who I want to be becoming. And that leads to the second kind of thought. Those thoughts fill our day. They're not necessarily bad, but they distract us from interacting with God. Dallas Willard reminds us that busyness keeps us from being present with God and present to each other. That's why Willard says that hurry is the mortal enemy to the life of the soul. If hurry is the first, the other great threat to a mind awake with God is mindless entertainment. There there was this guy named uh, John Ortberg, and, and he wrote, television is attractive because it distracts us. But of course, in the long run, it simply makes our minds that much weaker, that much more dependent on outside stimulus to keep us entertained. Video games, television, the internet can all fill our mind, fill our time, and crowd out Jesus. And that leaves the third thoughts. The third thoughts I can have lead me to the presence of Christ. They're not necessarily religious thoughts, but they are the kind that I want to fill my mind. Whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is noble, if anything is right or admirable or excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things and you will come into the presence of Christ, says Paul. Those are the kinds of thoughts I want. But in my experience, they don't come naturally. They don't stay easily. R.C. Sproul once said, the only way to get a transformed mind is to pursue knowledge of God. I, I believe that, but I think that it means that if you're not in Bible study, you're not growing in the mind. I've come to believe that the life of the mind is about the key associations I have throughout my day. It's as much about the shows I watch and the books I read, the conversations I have that either encourage or discourage a God-open mind or they make me confuse wisdom with my GPA and my law scores, my law school scores. Don't confuse your mind with your schooling. That was Oscar Wilde. Wilde said education is an admirable thing, but it's worth remembering from time to time that almost nothing worth knowing can be taught. St. Paul, the great mind, proves that in his letter to the Romans. His advice is almost comically simple. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to the good. Repay no one evil for evil. You do not need a degree from MIT to know stuff like that and keep it close to your mind. Let me leave you with this. The last decades of our culture saw the rise of a movement called the New Atheists, a group of thinkers that saw church and all religions as the enemy of the mind, responsible for much of the pain and conflict in the world. They wanted to get rid of it. Probably the most famous of these were Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. They were called the evangelical atheists because they wanted to persuade against faith rather than the usual science is public and religion is private. They wanted to get it off the board. What was interesting is that often 
on the same debate stage was uh, a white-haired man named Francis Collins, who's just retired as the head of the NIH. Collins came to faith himself in his late 20s, and it changed the way he viewed life. He started to see a strong connection between his calling as an explorer of the universe and as a child of God. And for several years, he would engage in these debates, especially with Christopher Hitchens. Usually they were cordial. They were almost always unwavering on both sides. But then the tone of the relationship between the two men changed when Hitchens developed esophageal cancer in 2010 and got sicker and sicker and died 10 years ago. Hitchens and Collins continued to meet, eventually with Francis Collins visiting his dying friend's bedside. Now, Hitchens hated the idea of deathbed conversions. He thought they were just bad taste. You shouldn't try to do deathbed conversions. But he grew to care more and more for the presence of his friend, Francis. They were so close that even as Hitchens' posthumous writings, the writings that were published after he died, showed his opposition to faith, he asked Francis Collins to play the piano for his friend's memorial service. That's why Menlo wants to, invite, wants to engage the life of the mind, because it shapes our mind, and then our minds shape our hearts, and our hearts shape our lives, and the lives of those around us. C.S. Lewis is an example of somebody who was a reluctant convert, whose strong mind couldn't turn to Christianity until it was wooed, only slowly coming to see how God could be a credible alternative in a very secular environment at Oxford. But when that mind did engage with the gospel, he saw life differently. And he wrote this. It's since Christians have largely have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this world. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely the ones who thought the most of the next world, the engagement of the mind, today and for all of eternity. From our God to our mind to our heart, to our hands, for me and for you. God bless you today.